Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to chapel. As we begin, let me remind you that after today, we only have one more chapel. Uh, next next Monday, though, you'll be in class. We'll be through with chapel, so you'll, you'll have a walk, as we used to say in the old days. Let's begin with a word of prayer.
one side of my bunk bed, I had all of my G.I. Joe soldiers and weaponry, and on my sister's side, she had all of her My Little Ponies and unicorns. And I wasn't too concerned about what would happen. You don't have to study a lot of military history to know that unicorns very rarely beat soldiers on the battlefield. But there are different accounts of what actually did happen. And since my sister is not here in the room, let me tell you the true story, um, which is my sister is a little bit on the clumsy side. And somehow, without any help or push from her older brother at all, Suddenly, Amy disappeared off of the top of her bed and landed with this crash on the floor. I nervously peered over the side of the bed to see what had fallen my fallen sister and saw that she had landed painfully on her hands and knees on all fours on the ground. I was nervous for two reasons. First of all, my sister was and is my best friend despite the story which she hates. But much more importantly, I had been charged with my parents with making sure Amy and I played as safely and as quietly as possible this time seeing as how I'd accidentally broken Amy's arm just one, one week before, um, heroically pushing her out of the way of an oncoming imaginary sniper bullet, <laughs> for which I have yet to be thanked. I was trying as hard as I could to be on my best behavior, and I saw in my sister's face this wail of pain and suffering, threatening to erupt from her mouth and threatening to wake my parents from the long winter's nap for which they had settled. So I did the only thing my little frantic, seven-year-old brain could think to do to avert this tragedy. I said, Amy, Amy, wait, don't cry. Did you see how you landed? No human lands on all fours like that. <laughs> she looks up with confusion mid-cry and her face and says, Amy, I think you're a unicorn. <laughs> that was cheating, because there's nothing in the world Amy would want more than not to be Amy the hurt five-year-old little sister, but Amy the special unicorn. Of course, there was an option that was open to her brain at no point in the past, and you could see on my poor manipulated sister's face conflict as my brain attempted to devote resources to feeling that her brain attempted to devote resources to feeling the pain and suffering and surprise she just experienced or contemplating her newfound identity as a unicorn and of course the latter one out instead of crying instead of ceasing our play instead of waking my parents with all the negative consequences that would have ensued for me instead of smile spread across her face and she scrambled right back up onto the bunk bed with all the grace of What we stumbled across at this tender age of just five and seven, we had no idea at the time, was something that was going to be at the vanguard of a scientific revolution that was occurring two decades later in the way that we look at the human brain. See, what we could have done is walk away from that afternoon thinking you can manipulate somebody in the midst of suffering, hoping that they'll be positive. But what we really discovered was something much more powerful and something I'd love to get to share with you today. They said, whatever you do after... Thanksgiving for a chapel, don't show a graph to start people off. Um, so I want to start off with a graph. Um, this graph looks boring. This graph is the reason that I get excited and wake up every morning, which means I live an extraordinarily exciting life. Each of these red dots indicates an individual. I could be plotting anything here. This could be an age, a child's age, relationship to height. Now, if I got this data back studying Baylor, I would be because there's very clearly a trend that's going on there, and that means as a scientist, I can get published, which is all that really matters. The fact that there's one weird red dot that's up above the curve is no problem. It's no problem, because most of you know, I'm just going to delete that dot. I'm going to delete it because it's clearly a measurement error, and I know that it's an error because it's messing up my data. So one of the very first things that we teach people in economics and statistics and psychology courses is how in a statistically valid way do we eliminate these weirdos? How do we eliminate the people that are messing up our line of best fit, which is awesome, if I'm trying to find out how many Advil somebody should take. 
But if I'm interested in potential, your potential, like how smart can you become? How fast can you run? If I'm interested in how uh, humorous a person can be, how you know, uh, much money they can make when they grow up, all these different types of things. If we're asking a question about potential, what we're really doing by doing this is creating something I call the cult of the average. If I ask a question like, how fast can we make a child learn how to read in a classroom here in Waco? Scientists change the answer to how fast does the average child learn how to read in a classroom here in Waco? Forgetting the fact that many of us read much faster, much slower than the average, and we tailor the class right towards the average. Now, if you fall below average, then psychologists get thrilled, because that means you're either depressed, or you have a disorder, or hopefully both. <laughs> we want both because our business model is slightly different as psychologists. If you come into a therapy session with one problem, we want to make sure you leave knowing you have 10 problems, so you keep coming back over and over again. But eventually, the role of traditional psychology is how do we make you normal again? But normal is merely average. So what I posit, what positive psychology posits, is that if we study what is merely average, we're going to remain merely average. Then instead of deleting the people amongst you that are so high in different dimensions, we want to study you. I want to, want, I want to know why some of you in this room are extremely resilient, or extremely funny, or you have high levels of intelligence, or creative ability, artistic ability, um, your athletic ability is off the charts, whatever it is that causes you to be an outlier, what we want to do is to study you. Because maybe we can glean information from the positive side of the curve, not just about how to move people up to the average, but how we can move the entire average up in our schools, in our companies, in our families worldwide. The reason I find this to be so personally important is that when I turn on the news, it seems like the majority of the information seems to be negative. You look at the little scroll bar at the bottom of Fox News or CNN, and it's all about natural disasters, and car accidents, and murder, and corruption. And our brains start to believe that that's the accurate ratio negative to positive in our world, which creates something called the medical school syndrome, which many of you might know about. During the first year of medical school, as you read through a list of all the symptoms and diseases that could happen to somebody, suddenly many of these brilliant and aspiring doctors think that they have all of those diseases. I have a brother-in-law named Bobo, which is another story how that happened. Um, but Bobo, and I know you have a spiritual center, I guess named after him. Bobo called me on the phone uh, from Yale Medical School. He said, Sean, I, I have leprosy, <laughs> which even in Yale is extraordinarily rare. But I had no idea how to console poor Bobo because he had just gotten over an entire week of menopause. See, <laughs> what we're finding is it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, but the lens through which we view the world that shapes our experience of it. So what I'd like to do is talk about what happens if we change the lens through which we view the world. What happens to our performance? How do we become those positive outliers, and how do we spread positivity to other people? In order to show you that, I need to do a brief experiment with you. This is an experiment that we did in the class at Harvard that enrolled one out of every seven Harvard students in a single semester. What we found is, well, actually, let's do it. So if you're willing to participate, I am not allowed to bring consent forms to a chapel, so you don't have to do any of my experiments today. But if you're willing to, just partner up very quickly uh, in the pairs of two. Well, of course, pairs of two. Pairs. Partner up in the pairs very quickly. Uh, with somebody sitting next to you. The only caveat in this experiment is you're not allowed to partner with somebody that you're married to or that you want to be married to. So please move around if you need to for this morning's chapel. So make sure everyone has a partner. Everyone needs a partner. So does everyone have a partner of non-marriageable material? All right, the person sitting closest to this wall, you're person number one in the group. Person closest to that wall, you're number two in the group. So there should be a one and a two in each pair. Does everyone know who they are? 
I'm saying that because I did this on Wall Street three months ago, and it literally took them four months to figure out who number one in the group was. <laughs> so here's what, uh, here's what I need you to do. Person number one, well, actually for all of you, over the course of your life, you've taken your genes, and you've built them up through your self-discipline and control, so you can pass the classes you needed to in school, so you can be good at your sports and your musical instruments. All that self-discipline and control is the reason you're at Baylor and why you're thriving here at Baylor. So here's what I like to do. I'd like you to use all that self-discipline and control that you've been cultivating for two decades, and I'd like you to use it to um, control your yourself with your partner if you can. So person number one, what I ask you to do is do not get angry with person number two when they do to you what I'm about to tell them to do to you. <laughs> person number one, don't get angry. Don't get sad. Please don't cry like this morning's group. Don't cry. Don't laugh. Don't smile. In fact, person number one, this should be very easy for you to do. For Chapel, what I'd like you to do is to do nothing. What I'd like you to do for the next uh, seven seconds with your partner is to actually control yourself to do nothing with them if you can. So person number one and two, please face one another. Make sure you're an arm's length with one another. And person number one, just go neutral on the inside. Try and feel no emotions and try and think no thoughts, which would be a lot easier for some of you than others. And for everyone else, what I like you to do, well, person number one, just control your face and your body. Try and just show a poker face. Don't show any fear or frustration when person number two does to you what I'm going to tell them to do to you. Once you're ready, person number one, you're using all of your decades of self-discipline and control to control your face, your mind, and your uh, spirit. Then person number two, please look at them. Make sure you're looking at them in the eyes. And for the next seven seconds, person number two, just smile genuinely at person number one. Go. <laughs> and stop. I'm sorry, we're going to have to do that one more time. Um, I didn't realize when I put you in pairs that person number one was going to be that terrible at it. So person number two, I am so sorry. I didn't realize... I didn't realize you were the one with all the power and control in this relationship. So let's just switch around. Person number two, just go neutral on the inside. Feel no emotions, think no thoughts, and poker face. Person number one, look at them. Make sure you're looking at them in the eyes for the next seven seconds. It's your turn for retaliation. Go. <laughs> and stop. So raise your hand if you failed miserably at my task. Raise, oh my goodness. That makes you guys actually pretty average. What we found is when we did this worldwide, 80 to 85% of individuals cannot control themselves for seven seconds in this experiment. I just did this experiment with 50-year-old men at a bank that's not doing well in Tokyo, Japan, and the smile percentage was 82%, which is extraordinary. What we're talking about is something extremely universal. What we found is if I put myself into a brain scan and I start to smile, part of my brain wakes up and says, Sean, you're smiling. That's not that interesting. But if I put myself into a brain scan and I'm not smiling, which is what you just tried to do and failed so miserably at, and somebody looks at you and is smiling, what happens is small parts of my brain light up and they say, Sean, you're smiling. <laughs> but I'm not smiling. You are smiling. But before I can stop myself, my brain drops a chemical called dopamine into the brain, releasing this chemical that causes me to be happier. And what's happening is small, small little parts of my brain called mirror neurons are lighting up showing activation. They're saying, Sean, you're smiling. When that happens, it causes my face to contort into a smile before I can stop myself. This is the reason 
why yawn spread separate classrooms. If you see one person yawn in your visual field and somebody else yawns as well, what happens is your brain, those mirror neurons, start to activate as you're yawning. And the reason this is so important, if you have 15 people all waiting on a, uh, for a plane, and you introduce somebody called a research confederate, that's somebody who works on my research team, but no one else knows as a researcher. That confederate comes and stands in the middle of the 15 people and begins to bounce nervously in place. Tap their foot impatiently on the floor and look at their watch repeatedly with a frown on their face. Within two minutes of waiting for that plane, depending on the replication of the study worldwide, between seven to 12 of the 15 individuals will unconsciously start bouncing nervously in place, tapping their foot impatiently on the ground and or looking at their watch more than four times in a two minute span of time. If you don't believe me, this is actually one of the experiments you can do yourself the next time you're getting on if you want to spread stress and negativity to other people. <laughs> but what we found is, and even as a positive psychologist, I love doing this experiment, but we don't need to oftentimes because somebody's running late from a transfer or they're having a bad sales call and you'll watch the non-verbals of people around them pick up on that negativity like secondhand smoke. These mirror neurons mean that we're hardwired not just for sympathy, we're hardwired for empathy which means you can be an extraordinarily optimistic person here at Baylor. But if you're surrounded by a couple of your friends who are negative or stressful, or looking at all the things that are the complaints and hassles around them, or if you're looking at a media that's focused upon the negative, your brain can start to pick up on that like secondhand smoke. So how do we find a way of buffering our brains against the negativity around us while using the fact that everyone in here is connected through a mirror neuron network to make it so small, positive changes you make to your own life ripple out to around you. In order to study that, we had to look at some research originally done um, at Harvard. I, I went to Harvard when I, when I went there. I had applied on a dare. I didn't expect to get to go there. My family had no money for college. So it, wasn't an it wasn't even a possibility. But when I got in and got a Navy scholarship and paid for it, suddenly it's something that wasn't even a possibility became a reality. And the reason I mentioned that is it changed the way we were about to do the research we talked about. Because when I was sitting in those classes, in the midst of all the competition, the stresses, the hassles, felt like it was a privilege to be there because I didn't expect to be there. And I looked around, many of the other students felt that way. If they were in a classroom full of people that were much smarter than them, they didn't feel bad about themselves. They felt excited and felt like it was a privilege to be with those students. Now, that was great for those students. We saw that they thrived in the place. They, they would take classes that they might not get a good grade in just so that they could learn more. But as I became a proctor, an officer of Harvard that lived in residence with the students for the next eight years, so I lived in dorms for 12 years, what we found is that for those individuals, we found that many of the people coming there, no matter how happy they were when they got accepted, two weeks later, their brain was focused not on the acceptance or the privilege or their philosophy or their physics. It was focused on all the negativity, the hassles, the complaints, the workload, the stresses that they had. And as a result of that, those students' performance started to decrease. Now, when my friends from Waco come to visit me up there, they look around and they see these beautiful buildings and all the opportunities and resources. They see the freshman dining hall where all the first-year students get to eat their meals. This is the first year where all the first-year students get to eat their meals, which is a stunningly beautiful building, which looks like something out of Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, which I know many of you know of. Um, how many people saw the most recent movie? Awesome. Um, and, uh, and then this is Harvard. So when they see this, they say it looks like something out of Hogwarts. It's just missing the owls. That's all it doesn't have. And they, their question is this. Sean, why are you wasting time studying happiness at Harvard? Because seriously, what does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? Which is an important question, especially as I've done work with uh, uh, students that are living outside of shanty towns in South Africa, working with 
as for people that seem to have so much in front of them? Well, the reason is embedded within that question is the key to understanding the science of happiness. Because what it assumes is that it, as a scientist, if I know everything about your external world, what clothes you wear, what car you drive, what college you go to, what the weather is like outside, how many degrees you have, all these different types of things, all of those combined, as a scientist, I can only predict 10% of your long-term happiness. 90% of your happiness as an individual is a mystery to scientists if all I have is your external world, because 90% of your happiness has nothing to do with the external world and everything to do with how your brain processes and thinks about that external world, the lens to which you view that world. So the question is, how do we change that lens and how much of effect would it have upon the world around us? So what we found is this, and if you take only one thing away from my talk today, I hope it's this slide. What we found is that if I know your IQ, if I took everyone's IQ here this morning, and I attract you while you're at Baylor, I can only predict one-third of the differences in your grades at school. Now, that doesn't sound that interesting, but when I was in college, I thought, hey, that kid gets A's, that kid is smart. That kid gets all C's and D's, that kid is not smart. That's the end of the story. But what we now know is that's scientifically inaccurate. Only a third of your grades are predicted by how smart you are. Two-thirds of your grades are predicted by three other factors. The first is the belief that your behavior matters. If you believe your behavior matters, you're going to keep studying because you think eventually it'll have an effect upon your grades. You'll meet up with the teachers, you apply for scholarships, you work on your instruments, you work out on the practice field, all these different types of things because you believe your behavior matters. The second is you take kids with equal levels of intelligence. You give one of them a positive social support network, and their grades will skyrocket. What that means is their family members, their friends, their coworkers, their peers, all the people around them, all of them believe that that person has a high potential and are positive. And that will dramatically increase their scores. The third is every single one of you experiences stress. No one's immune to stress, but some of you view stress as a challenge, and other of you view it as a threat. When you view it as a challenge, your brain activates and turns on. When you view it as a threat, your brain disengages. And why is this important? Well, what we found is, take four-year-old children, split them into two different groups, and prime one of the groups to be positive, and leave the other ones at neutral, just putting blocks together. What they found is the children at positive put the blocks together 50% faster than the children at neutral. When the researchers saw this, they were like, that's crazy, because what does spatial memory have anything to do with happiness? So then in 1997, they were doing experiments on doctors, and they found if you prime doctors to be positive, as opposed to negative, neutral, or stressed, suddenly they have a 50% increase in the speed and accuracy of their diagnoses. The same thing we saw with the four-year-old children in the 80s, and a three-fold increase in their creativity. That started a whole field where we found out, if I give everyone in here 15 different types of intelligence tests, every way we know how to test intelligence, but I make you happy as opposed to negative, neutral, or stressed before you take that test, you do better at not one or two dimensions of intelligence, but all 15 of your intelligence dimensions we know how to test improve when you're positive. And when I first heard that research, I was like, okay, the data is there, but that doesn't comport with reality at all. Because I know I'm a positive psychologist, but let's be honest for a second. Happy people, <laughs> they're not usually the smart people, right? Happy people are the ones that don't get it. Happy people are the ones you have to keep explaining things to over and over again. They don't understand how, you know, the markets are working. They don't understand, you know, what's going on in the world. They don't understand how unhappy their happiness makes me feel. They don't understand any of this at all. That's not what this research is saying. It's not saying that if you're happy, that you're suddenly the smartest person here at Baylor. Because everyone in here knows somebody who is
brilliant and not happy. Everyone in here knows someone who's successful and not happy. When we see that, we start to think, okay, happiness doesn't matter to those things. But now what we know scientifically is both of those individuals, the brilliant one and the successful one, if they were unhappy, are significantly underperforming what their brain's capability actually was. Because what we found is something we now call the happiness advantage. When your brain is positive, every single business and educational outcome improves. We find that your productivity increases, intelligence, creativity, energy, you see more possibilities in your environment, which causes people to seem like they're more lucky. You're perceived as being more attractive, you're perceived as being more charismatic. You live longer, you have fewer uh, symptoms, your symptoms are less acute when you're sick, a whole host of benefits. And we now know your brain has been designed to work best at positive, not negative neutral or stressed. But here's the problem. When we're at work or when we're at school, we're normally working at negative neutral or stressed in our classes or when we're doing schoolwork. The reason for that is because I think, and this is the thing I want you to take away, from working with these countries over the past year, I've traveled to 44 different countries, trying to learn about happiness from different people around the world, Africa and Asia and South America and Europe, and what we found is this. Most people follow a flawed formula for happiness. We think, if I can just work harder right now, then I'm gonna be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I'll be happier. That formula is scientifically broken and backwards for two reasons. The first is, every time your brain is successful, it changes the goalpost of what success looks like. So you got good grades in high school, don't get excited yet because now you have to get good grades here. Don't get happy about that because you now have to get a good scholarship so you can get a good job, so you can go back to school, so you can get better jobs, rise up in the ranks, get up to the top, and then your kids have to do well. You hit your sales target, that's great, let's raise them for the next semester. Or you, you've lost five pounds, well imagine how good you look if you lost another five pounds. That whole mentality of I'll be happier when is based upon that formula of I work harder right now, I'll be more successful and then I'll be happier. When it turns out, if you do that philosophy, if happiness is on the opposite side of success, which you keep moving, our brains never get to happiness. And more importantly than that, the research we've been doing over a decade at Harvard proves the opposite. It says that our brain works in the opposite order. If you can find a way of raising your brain's level of happiness and positivity in the midst of your work, your school, as you're doing your sports, as you're playing your musical instrument, then your success rates rise dramatically because your brain is op uh, operating at its full capacity. Intelligence, creativity, energy, a whole host of factors. So that's all great news, only if your brain can be positive. But as you're going into exams, you know many of you feel stressed or anxious or worried or as you're applying for scholarships or you're thinking about the next couple years, your brain can easily go to negative. So how do we change? That's what I'd like to talk about for the last little bit of uh, chapel. What we found is, we found the answers to it studying um, uh, Tetris. What we found is, how many people have played the game Tetris? Oh, a lot of you. Um, I, uh, it's okay if you haven't played Tetris, you're more productive than everyone else. Um, Tetris is a game where, a uh, video game, where shapes fall from the ceiling, like they do in real life. And you just, uh, you just rotate those shapes around until you can make straight lines. The goal of Tetris is how do we make straight lines? Harvard Medical School hired Harvard Business School students and paid them to play Tetris for five hours in a row, uh, which is an awesome experiment. Um, afterwards, one of the female participants was walking through Harvard Yard, and she ran into the professor, and she said, hi, professor. And he said, I don't know who you are. And she said, I, I did your Tetris experiment. And he said, well, thank you for participating, and walked away from her. And she grabbed this old professor and turned him around and said, 
Professor, I need to tell you something. You're going to think that I'm crazy, but after that experiment where you made me sit in that psychology laboratory for five hours making straight lines over and over again, I walked out of the experiment, walked through Harvard Yard, walked into a supermarket, and I found myself rearranging the bread on the shelf to make straight lines. She said, am I crazy? And he said, yes, yes, you are. <laughs> Please stop touching me. But it turns out, when we started researching the other people that are involved with the study, it turns out many of them were experiencing the same thing as well. One student yelled out in class, oh, I wish I had an L-shaped car so I could make a straight line down that road out there, which makes no sense. We don't even make L-shaped cars anymore. What was happening was his brain was stuck in a, a, something we now call a Tetris effect. It's a cognitive afterimage. If you look at the world through the same pattern for too long, your brain retains that imprint of the pattern. If you play Tetris for too long, looking for the how to make straight lines, your brain keeps looking for straight lines. If you look for the problems, the hassles, complaints, and negative things first, your brain actually retains the pattern of looking for those. But unfortunately, like my poor sister, who accidentally fell off the bed when I pushed her, what we found is her brain could not do two things at once. It could not scan the world for the negative and the positive at the same time. Our brains can't. Our brain is like a single processor in a computer, capable of devoting only a finite amount of experience, uh, resources to experiencing the world. So here's what we found. We can retrain and rewire your brain through small little experiments. William James, who was a professor at Harvard, after whom our psychology building his name, said, if you do the same activity 21 days in a row, you'll create a life habit. So put on a seatbelt 21 days in a row. Day 22, you don't even have to think about it. Your brain is going to put on that seatbelt, and you'll expend no energy doing it. So the question is, what else can we make a life habit out of? So we've been doing a lot of these experiments, but one of the things that they found is, in a period of 21 days, you can retrain your brain to scan the world, not for how do I make straight lines, or what are the problems, the hassles, complaints that I see first. But you start to see the things you're grateful for, the meaning you have, and the belief that your behavior matters. We found five of those that change your brain so much in a short period of time that we found that it creates the happiness advantage not only for you, but for other people. And in, uh, without you having to go meditate um, for 80 days or anything along those lines, what we found is uh, if you wake up every morning and write down three things you're grateful for that are different every day for 21 days in a row. And you can't say you're grateful for your health. No one cares. Why are you grateful for your health? Are you grateful for your friends? That's great. Why are you grateful for your friends? You write down three things you're grateful for. After a period of 21 days, you've just written down the 63 things you're grateful for, which is amazing. It shows your brain how much you have to be grateful for. But what's cool is if you do this, it takes 45 seconds to do. Afterwards, you're slightly happier, which we can't excited about because we actually got a better effect if we gave you chocolate each morning. But what we found is that after 21 days in a row, it changes the pattern, the Tetris effect in your brain views the world. That 45 seconds ends up affecting the rest of the 24 hours as your brain gets stuck in a neural trap of looking for what are the things I'm grateful for. And you suddenly start seeing more and more things to be grateful for throughout the day. And as a result of that, your brain is focused on the positive instead of merely on the negative. As a result of that, your brain is better at dealing with the problems you actually have. People that do this for 21 days, six months later, after they stop the experiment, their brains are significantly more optimistic, they're getting better evaluations, they find higher levels of energy and productivity, and it ripples out to the people around them who've never even done these gratitudes. Journaling, you just write into a Word document for five minutes a day, writing about a positive experience you've had, and what we find is when individuals do this for five minutes a day, just one positive experience, your brain starts to connect the dots through the 21 days, creating a meaning trajectory through your day. So it's not, what are the tasks and work I have to get done today? Then you go to sleep frustrated, you didn't get them all, and you have more tasks. Your brain has a new pattern. 
the pattern is looking for those nodes of meeting throughout your day, and now all of your classes, the emails you have, the meetings you have, wrap around that meeting, causing you to feel more authenticity in everything you do, raising your levels of happiness. I can even split the room in half, make this side of the room journal, and this side of the room forbid you to journal, because I'm really like, cool, I'm not gonna do it anyway. And um, if we did that, what we find is, that this side of the room, three weeks later, I expose you to a cold virus. This side of the room gets the cold virus 30% less, just because they journal. If you had a neural, we got permission to do this experiment, not with you, but um, <laughs> it's amazing they gave us permission. We found that if you take people with a neuromuscular disease, with chronic pain, and make them journal, doing the same experiment, you can drop their pain medication by 50%. What we're talking about is something extraordinary, that something so small could have such a big impact upon our happiness and our experience Exercise, exercise is great, but we also know exercise changes the pattern to which you view the world. I find when I exercise, I suddenly start eating healthier. I don't have to eat healthier, I'm exercising. But so my brain says, Sean, you're successful in this domain, I bet you can be successful somewhere else. And what we find is it creates a cascade of success, where your brain believes your behavior matters after you exercise. And as a result of that, that bleeds over into every aspect of your life. The fourth is meditation. We found that all of us are trying to multitask, and we do all these different things all the time, and many of you can multitask very well, but by definition, even if you're good at multitasking, it drops your success rate on both tasks and raises the stress on your system. What we found is that when individuals meditate, what that means is that they just watch their breath go in and out for two minutes a day. They just take their hands off of their keyboard. What we find is that individuals that do that for two minutes a day for 21 days in a row, it undoes all the negative effects of multitasking throughout the rest of the day, which is extraordinary as your brain learns a new pattern of doing one thing at a time. So you can have multiple tasks, but your brain is shining your resources down like a laser on each of those tasks. The last one is conscious acts of kindness. We found that when you wake up in the morning, you write a one to two sentence email praising or thanking somebody in your life. That's it, for 21 days in a row. Yes, it activates 21 people around you, creating that feedback loop through that mirror neuron network. But what we find is your brain now realizes you have 21 people in your social support network you need to thank. And as a result of that, your brain's level of social support rises, which improves your grades and causes that happiness advantage that we were talking about. Now, when people see this list, they say it looks very common sense. Everyone knows these things. But information alone is not transformation. I talked to a sleep researcher who said if you sleep eight to, uh, eight to nine hours a night, you age significantly slower. Afterwards, I went up to her and I was like, that's amazing research. You must sleep like 20 hours a night. And he said, Sean, I'm a sleep researcher. I stay awake all night watching people sleep. Um, I sleep like three hours a night. He told me how old he was. He literally looked 10 years older than he actually was. He was walking, living proof of his research, but in the opposite direction. American male doctors know that obesity is bad for you. 44% of American male doctors are overweight. Information is a transformation. So we know already what can cause us to be happier. The question is, will we do it? And that's where I wanted to conclude with. I found that I had a guitar sitting in a case in my closet. And I said, you know, William James is right, 21 days from now I should be a musician. So I made an Excel spreadsheet with 21 columns, was gonna check off doing this habit for 21 days. At the end of it, I looked back at it, and I only checked off two days, which made me depressed, because I'm a positive psychologist. Then I felt depressed, and I felt depressed, same problem. So what I did was, I decided to do an experiment where I tested to see how long it took me to get the guitar case out of the closet and out of the case. That took me 20 seconds, which is fast, but not applause worthy. Then I bought a $2 stand from one of my friends, put the guitar out of the case of the closet on the stand and did the experiment again. 21 days later, I played the guitar for 21 days in a row and William James was right. Now I've created a life habit of playing the guitar. So every day I'm home, I play the guitar and every day I'm traveling.
That's not the point of the story, because that'd be a very boring and self-involved story if Sean learns to play the guitar. The important part about the story is I had an illusory 20-second mental barrier to doing something I wanted to do. Every time I walked past that closet, I knew I wanted to play the guitar, but every time I walked past it, my brain would say, you want to play the guitar? And my brain would say, uh, no, it takes forever to get the guitar out of the casing closet. Why don't we do something else? And I'm like, okay. And I walk away, and I never play. What I was experiencing is something that you will all experience if you try to make positive changes in your life. It's something called activation energy. It's the reason why our minds and our spirits will want to do something, but our bodies oftentimes don't. Activation energy is, if you know about chemistry and physics, is the energy it takes at the beginning of the formula to catalyze the reaction. Same thing's true for us. The biggest amount of energy to make a change in our life is at the beginning of the formula, which means then is the reason why we procrastinate. We wait for our stress level to rise up higher than what we call activation energy. And it usually takes more mental energy to start a task than to do a task, which is why we leave emails in our inbox for three months that only take three minutes to do. The reason we do this is because that activation energy is the path of least resistance for our brain. So here's the cool part. If you change it, you change how easy it is to make positive habits. I had a negative habit. My negative habit was I was watching too much television. The average American, according to Google, watches 5.2 hours of TV a day. I was slacking, I was only getting in about three hours of TV, but I wasn't doing my work, I wasn't seeing my friends, but every day I'd come home from work, I'd sit down on the couch and I'd press the on button on the remote control, low activation energy, and then I'd come home from the office and I would watch the office. So what I did was, I decided to do the same trick my brain had played upon me with the guitar on the TV. I took that same stopwatch, took the batteries out of my remote control, walked them exactly 20 seconds away to my bedroom, and left the batteries there. Then the next couple days, I came home, sat down on the couch, pressed the on button on the remote control, usually repeatedly, and go, oh, I hate that I do these experiments. <laughs> Where did I put the batteries this time? And my brain said, Sean, we timed it this time. The 20 seconds away, let's go get them. And my brain said, no, it takes forever to go get those batteries. Why don't we do something else? And I'm like, okay. So I put work right next to me on the couch. I had a, a book on the other arm of the couch that I've been wanting to read for years. I hadn't even told people I'd read that book. I had a journal open with a piano on top of it, guitar out. I had my phone so I could call my real friends instead of watching my fake friends on Glee. And as a result of that, what I did was I significantly decreased how much TV I watched by adding just 20 seconds to my day. I added 20 seconds and reaped on average about 14 conscious hours back to my week. I still watched TV, but only when it mattered, which meant lost, which means I had nothing. So what we found is you can stop a negative habit by increasing the activation energy. But where I want to leave you is how do you create a positive change? Pick one of those five things we know makes not only you happier, but improves your grades, improves how well you do at the different tasks you have, it ripples out to other people. That's meditation, that's journaling, that's exercise, that's writing down gratitudes, that's writing a kind email. Once a day for 21 days in a row. If you want to do that, make it easier. For me, I want to exercise every morning. But information is not transformation. I know all the reasons for it, but every morning I wake up and say, Sean, you want to exercise? And my brain would go, <laughs> no, I do not. Where are my clothes? Where are my shoes? What part of my body am I going to exercise? And by that point, I'd fallen back asleep again. Until one night, after failing for a year and a half to exercise in the morning, I decided to put my athletic shoes right next to my bed, I put a workout routine on the wall, and I lowered the activation energy by just going to sleep in my gym clothes for the next morning. Which my mom wonders why I'm still single. <laughs> I think it's these experiments. But what we found is all I had to do in the morning was roll out of bed and put my feet, which already had socks on them, right into the shoes, and I was up exercising. We've subsequently found that if you get your athletic shoes on, something weird happens to the human brain where you actually think it's easier to go work out now than have to take all of this stuff back off again. It's not the time that it's easier to take all that stuff back off again. But what we found is the brain follows the path of least resistance towards positive habits. 
So think about a positive habit you know will increase your happiness. Find a way to make it easier by lowering the activation energy. And as a result of that, not only will you start to reap that happiness advantage of every educational and business outcome improving, but because of that mirror neuron network, you will spread that happiness not only to yourself, to your family members, to your friends here at Baylor, but it will spread to even strangers across the world. Thank you for the opportunity to share this research, and if you want to see